Thanks for coming tonight. I'm Conan Tobias. I'm the editor of Tattle Creek Magazine. Uh, we are... Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're, uh, we're launching uh, issue 44 tonight. This is it right here. Uh, we normally have a table set up. It's so small in here. I didn't do that. Just come and grab me. I've got a pile here. I will sell you one myself. Uh, or you can try and steal one. You can get out the door. Uh, thanks. I'm so happy to, to see so many people come out tonight. We don't usually launch in January. We usually launch before Christmas. Uh, we went to press just a few days late this year, and uh, it was, it was going to be a little too close to Christmas to launch, so we pushed it to January. And I thought we'd just have kind of a homey in front of the fake fireplace kind of launch. Uh, and I did not think that we'd have a ton of people, but we do. So thanks. It's great to see so many people who are in the magazine, who have been in previous magazines, who have not been in any magazine. Uh, we're just going to entertain you with four quick readings tonight. The people, three people from the issue, one person not from the issue, from a previous issue. And then you can go back to talking and drinking and uh, finding somewhere to sit. Uh, thanks to uh, fa uh, Famous Last Words for having us tonight and the staff. Uh -huh. I've had several people say they live nearby and have never been here, so hopefully you'll come back now, uh, now that you know it's here. Uh, like I said, uh, four readings tonight, quickly. Uh, our first author is uh, Victoria Hetherington. She's the author of the novel uh, Mooncaps, which came out very recently. She is associated with Nathaniel G. Moore, who some of you may know uh, as Tattle Creek's most rejected author. Don't hold that against her. Her, her writing's fantastic. Uh, please welcome Victoria Hetherington. I'm so excited to be here that I wore my most... Oh, okay. You're going to have to project. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here that I wore my most extra dress. <laughs> These are all stickers. Okay, so... Um, so, uh, basically, my story is a little bit weird. Um, aliens come to Earth, and they are curious about what love is. Uh, how do humans sort of generate this kind of feeling towards other humans? Uh, what the fuck is that? And so they decide to kind of uh, take the form of um, the uh, most comfortable human to the human that they are interrogating. So uh, for this particular bit that I'm reading to you guys, that human is uh, Dr. Phil, but for legal reasons, it's going to be Dr. Ted. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit of that. And thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. All right. <clears throat> Lorna had hidden her vibrator so well from Mel that even she couldn't find it. So she switched on the TV and got out the ice cream. If it ain't one thing, it's another. Do you know why they're laughing, says Dr. Ted from the TV? gesturing at the TV audience. No, goes the wife on the show. Because this is a ridiculous situation. Because they don't want to stand up on live national television and say, what the bleep is this? The audience applauds heartily. Well, F this, goes the husband, yanking the mic from his sweat-stained shirt fiddling with the wire, storming off the stage. Ronnie, please, moans the husband's mistress, seated opposite the woman and his wife, uh, reaching for his arm as he passes. If you're looking for the exit, it's that way, says Dr. Ted, pointing stage left. 
And the audience laughs at the man as he halts in his tracks and rubs his bald head. They're the ones full of bleep, says the husband, unmiked, his voice swallowed up by the bright, colorful space between him, the cameraman, the television screen, and Lorna. Well, since you're talking for them, I'll speak for them, says Dr. Ted, crossing his arms and leaning back towards the audience. Are y'all okay with that? Yes, roars the audience. They're laughing, Dr. Ted says, staring directly into the camera from beneath his heavy eyelids, drumming his shiny, expensively manicured nails against his suit. They're laughing because of your total and complete lack of insight and your narcissistic commitment to your own bull, beep, is more than they can take. And that should be a huge wake-up call to you. You should thank them. The audience roars again. They're not making light of this because it's funny, says Dr. Ted, climbing slowly up the steep flight of stairs, separating one half of the squirming, cheering audience from the other. It ain't funny at all. One audience member, a man, maybe somebody's husband, stretches a long arm into the aisle for a high five from Dr. Ted, which Dr. Ted ignores and keeps on climbing up the stairs. Imagine Mel at one of these things, Lorna says to her dog, Peaches, who hasn't moved at all in hours except to roll over onto her back and kick very gently each one of her paws. And you, Dr. Ted pivots on his heel, pointing back down the stage and directly at the wife, who is wiping her red, swollen face, a wobbly, tentative smile beginning at the corners of her mouth, which freezes under his gaze. They can't believe why you keep sitting around waiting for him to decide what happens in your life. The audience roars its approval. The camera cuts to a young woman with glittering eyes, slamming her hands together, her breasts bouncing. Lorna winces and turns down the volume a bit. And you. All of a sudden, Dr. Ted's voice fills the room, which is flooded with sunlight. Lorna jumps, and the remote drops on the rug. Trees erupt from nowhere and fill both windows, twinkling with leaves like gems. Summer unfolds into Lorna's lap. Dr. Ted is suddenly in the room. Don't think I've forgotten about you, darling, Dr. Ted says. His voice, not a noise, filtered through the wires, but a real voice now. He couldn't be more than six feet away from Lorna. He's standing in the doorway between the living room and the kitchen, leaning against the door jamb. He's wearing the same suit, blue and expensive looking, and his signature sneakers are bright and clean, like they've never touched the ground. May I, Dr. Ted says, his big, knotted hand outstretched towards the couch. Yes, Lorna says. Thank you. Dr. Ted says with a sigh, and then looks over at her and smiles. Now, Lorna, I know you almost called into my show in 1998. Don't you try to deny it, darling. You sat with the big old ceramic foam pressed to your ear for damn near an hour. And what did you want to say to me, honey? I wanted to say that I love you.
Lorna says. And I love you too, darling, I do. I do. Don't you know that I do? And Lorna sighs. Now I see it, she says. Do you believe, Lorna, he says, that if you love someone long enough, they'll feel it and they'll love you back? I do, Lorna says. Do you believe, Lorna, that if you love someone long enough, they'll feel it and they'll love you back? I do. And Dr. Ted leans over and slides his arm around her back, and she leans against his chest, and he strokes her hair. How did the love happen, Lorna, he says. I, I guess I watched your show every day, you know, first by accident, um, like by flipping through the channels. And I found you, and then I, um, I would wait every day for like 12.30 p.m. to happen, you know, and then I would see you. Um, the old opening song, you know, like, da na 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 Dr. Ted, he'll fix it. It was like, you know, it kind of broke my heart when the theme song changed. But, you know, now the new theme song, it gets my heart going just as much. And I've been watching you since before you got your new hair. I, I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't mean to insult you. I, I love your new hair. I just, I, if you don't mind me saying so, I was... I mean, I was so I was so different. I was so thin. I was so pretty back then, and, and lonely. And God, he, uh, my husband, my God, uh, he was traveling then and, and selling sales solutions to businesses. Which, honestly, so you were lonely, says Doctor Ted. Yes, I was, and I, and I did just as much as I could. I I couldn't tape your shows because. I couldn't think of, you know, a label for the videotape that wouldn't interest him, you know, my husband when he came home from his trips. Um, you know, like he hates fish, but he watched Free Willy like 20 times, you know? Free Willy is not a fish. Um, so like, I, you know, I got him a grocery pad and I would write love letters to you, Dr. Ted, and I would take them with me to the car and then I would scrunch them up to the grocery store and I would throw them out and then you know what? I would throw them out and I would be so careful. But one time I, I wrote one and it was just so private and I wrapped it up, I wrapped it around a penny instead and I threw it into a fountain. And I watched the pigeons at the edge of the fountain just bopping their heads like they heard your new theme song too, you know? Like, da na 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 Dr. Ted will fix it. And I thought, well, this kind of love ain't no harm. And Dr. Ted nods sagely and he says, well, what kind of harm does love, what, what kind of love does harm? And he smells and he feels so familiar to her, but distant, like the aftershave of a teacher from long ago or the shadows in the back of a black and white family photo that never looked the same twice. And she thinks about it. Well, it, the kind of love on your show. You know, people get pregnant, people lie. And he leans back and he thinks about it and he says, well, what kind of love feels right to you, Lorna? And she imagines her husband's shirts and socks drying out in the line, filling in and out with breaths of wind. Not this, she says. Dr. Ted seems hurt, and he pauses. When did you first feel love, Lorna, he says. Oh, this guy, Buck Thurgood, he, he was a, you know, a mechanic that I knew. You know, he kind of knew my dad, and he took me for drives and the nicer cars that he'd fixed. God, his hands. But 
I don't like to remember because I was kind of a child. And he wasn't. Dr. Ted's hand, choking her hair, grows still. How does a mother's love differ from erotic love, Lorna, he says, his voice suddenly a bit different. Well, you don't want to fuck your kids. She feels the nub of his spine through his shirt and his vest and his suit jacket. I didn't have kids with my husband, she says. And how long does a broken heart take to heal, Lorna? I'll tell you once it has, she says. Has love ever made you feel you want to do something strange? Made you feel strong or weak, he says. A low, warning growl suddenly issues from the edge of the room. Peaches, the dog, is awake. Why are you here? Lornis asks suddenly, caught between annoyance and fear. Dr. Ted, why do you want to know these things? The light in the room flashes a searing pink and then white-green before resettling into that deep summer yellow. Lorna hears Peach's bark, a frightened yap, but she can't quite hear her. She pulls away from Dr. Ted, looking for her dog. Quad darling, you're the one who tells people about love, don't you see? Every single day for 30 years, seems like. So, so, so why you come here and you ask me about it? Like I said, Lorna, Dr. Ted goes in a defeated voice, like he's ashamed of himself. I'm here because I love you. Prove it, Lorna says, leaning heavily against his chest and breathing in deeply. He smells both living and electric, like those gray-green moments right before a thunderstorm. And Peaches the dog howls. I can't, he says, his voice going strange, like the static, the snow that would slide between the screen of her first television set. And Lorna, you can't. She knows full well that he can't. But she can, can't she? And how is that any different? So she kisses his lips. And they're cold. Those lips are colder than anything that should be in that hot, honey-yellow room as the elm trees positively barf their masses of seeds out and against the windows. You want me, she instructs. I want you, he says, resignedly. She kisses him again and opens her mouth, kisses harder, and rubs her fingers through the odd clumps of hair, which kind of cluster and cling like dirtied fur and shake like frightened mice. His tongue presses up against hers, and she recoils. It's dry. As if sensing something is wrong, he stiffens, and the room darkens. But she forgives him that strangeness, too, seeking his free hand where it lies limp on the sofa and lacing his fingers through hers. Loves what I say it is, because it's something I know and you don't, she says. And she realizes that she thinks it. She thinks it without needing to say it out loud, because she knows that he can hear her. And he freezes, his mouth hanging open in a kind of horror. He flickers and disappears. And all at once, the phone rings, and Peaches barks, and the living room goes dark, lit only by the TV. It's a kind of flickering light that flits along the walls, 
refracted in blue, like it might look seen through gallons of water. Lorna fumbles for her phone, letting out a strange, dry sob. She wipes her hands on her neck, then slides her fingers across the screen, accepting the call. Baby? Lorna says. Her husband's voice comes to her. Tell me what you're wearing. What? Oh, hardly anything, she says. Oh, that's good, her husband goes. That's really good. Do you remember our first time? We put your seat all the way back, baby. It was so cold. It was so dark. It was so late. I didn't think we'd ever get home. A sigh reaches her, hissing like sand and ashes through an electric fan, distorted, no doubt, by the storm, by the speaker. He's gone, she says. How, how is it? Uh, the roads. Um, is it safe over there, she says. Oh, it's cold and quiet, her husband goes. All I hear is the wind. Lorna leans back on the couch. I remember. Of course I remember. You popped two of my buttons off my shirt when you were unbuttoning my shirt. Pop! You saw my tits and you said, Wow. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> Damn, that's all I had to say? No, I, 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 think I, I think I remember saying a lot more than that. I, I think I said, uh, please, at the very least, I think I asked for permission. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and she hears a pause, a loud rustling. Perhaps he's switching his phone from one ear to the other. There. I think I said, please, just a little further, a little more. Uh, you know, I, baby, I couldn't believe my luck. And really, he couldn't have gotten there on her, inside of her, fast enough as he parted her shirt, as he caressed her thighs, as he discovered the wet of her. So gentle and reverent, his thin fingers so cold. She'd ache so deeply that she feared she can best somehow, throbbing once, enormously, and winking out of existence forever. You wait. You wait right there, he says. I'm coming home to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tori. Uh, our next author tonight is J.R. McConby. Uh, he is so eager to read. He's sitting right here in front of the microphone. It's his first time in Taylor Creek this issue. He's been shortlisted for the Journey Prize and a bunch of other things, but that's the one I'm most envious of. So please welcome J.R. McConby. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Thank you to Tidal Creek and Conan for the invitation. Thank you to Famous Last Words for hosting. Uh, I write short stories, and I'm going to read one tonight, or part of one. And if you like what you hear, uh, my first uh, collection came out in September 2019. It's called Different Beasts, and I have some in my bag. So if you want one, you can come see me afterwards. It'll be like an old school drug deal. I'll pull something out of my bag and give me some money. It'll feel cool. We're all, we're all a little starved for that kind of thing right now, I'm sure. Uh, the internet's just not the same. Um, anyways, it's, it's a big thing for me to be in Tidal Creek. It's, as a Toronto writer, it's always been a, a publication I've put on a certain pedestal. So it feels like a, a real victory to get a, a piece placed in this. So thank you again to Conan. Um, as we know, as writers in the room know that victories are, are few and far between, uh, so uh, this is good. 
the piece is called Retreat, A Fairy Tale in Pieces. It's sort of a mix of auto-fiction uh, in as much as it's something that, it's based on something that actually happened to me, and then a structuralist approach to the fairy tale as outlined by the Russian scholar Vladimir Prop, um, which is to say that when I wrote this out, uh, this account of this thing that had happened to me, I sort of realized that it had the tone and shape of a fairy tale, and then when I mapped it, sort of dug in a bit and mapped it against props, these elements that he's identified as being common among uh, many folk and fairy tales, uh, I sort of realized that many of the, the notes that I hit in the story mm -hmm. corresponded to these things, but there were also gaps. So um, I, I decided to name various pieces of the story according to these elements that he's identified. So I'm going to read two for you tonight uh, from the story. The first one is called Reconnaissance. And the, a brief setup, uh, basically our, our protagonist and would-be hero has retreated from a city in collapse to uh, a sort of idyllic rural writer's retreat that's run by a uh, former Hollywood actress who has set aside this place as a space for artists to go in, in troubled times to continue their work. And so our, our again, would-be hero has gone to this place uh, amazed by his luck and decided that before he wants to go sit down and start writing and focusing on his work and doing something important, uh, he's going to go for a run on the lovely trails that surround the property. And, of course, he gets lost. Uh, so this is where we pick it up. <clears throat> and so this is uh, reconnaissance. <clears throat> oh, and, and one thing also, he's uh, in, in the process of getting lost, because he's terrified, he's picked up a, a, a branch that he sort of like thinks he can use as defense if he comes across any kind of wild animal or whatnot. So if you hear reference to the branch, that's he's sort of like, you know, like that. Okay, reconnaissance. I wasn't totally lost. I could see fencing and other houses not far in the distance. Shame kept me away, though. After all, I'd been told to stay on the marked trails and look where my carelessness had landed me. I checked the sun to try and orient myself. My head throbbed. Blood pounded in my temples. I stank like a rotten onion in a mushroom patch. Over the hills, I heard the whooshing of cars on the highway. I followed the sound, turning and turning back again, looping toward it. Finally, branch lolling in front of me like the neck of a skeletal dragon, I popped out onto a long gravel drive, winding up among the trees, leading to some gated manor hidden far back from the road. Not far up the drive, two people, a man and a woman, stood pruning an evergreen hedge along the back black iron fence. They were dressed in formal whites as though headed to Sunday Mass, but I could see the bulk of body armor under the fine cotton. When they noticed me, they tensed visibly, their faces puckering like blanched prunes. The man was holding long shears and the woman a small but vicious-looking pitchfork. I dropped the branch and put my hands out, coming forward slowly, anxiety paying like a hit pinball. I'm really sorry to bother you, I said, aware of how delicate I needed to be with strangers in these times. I'm staying at Sally Von Sand's cottage, Hearts Haven. I went for a run and got lost on the trails. Do you know how to get back? It's on uh, uh, Cozy Lake Road. The man looked at me as though I was a feral chihuahua, both harmless and repugnant. What are you doing on this property, he demanded, his tone sharp and agitated. Suddenly I was hyper aware of the no trespassing signs posted at regular intervals along the fence. I just ended up here, I said. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know how. 
Wrong turn, I think. I, I lost sight of the trail markers. You can't be here, said the man. He held his shears at waist height, blades open like the beak of a ravenous bird. Behind him, the woman stood, silent as stone, eyes flashing the black of a lacquered coffin. I don't want to be, I said. It was a mistake. I'm sorry. Can you help me get back? They glared at me, and I could feel the rage, the, the defensiveness radiating from them. Whatever they were protecting, whomever they served, was not open to disruptions from the failing world. I imagined what it would feel like to get the woman's pitchfork in the stomach, how strong she'd have to be to twist my guts out in a sloppy coil. The man stepped forward, shears open. Go back on the main road toward town, the woman said from behind, iron voice pausing the momentum of the man's rage. Turn on Dullahan's side road by the cemetery, then left of the cottage road. How far is that, I asked. Ten, twelve kilometers, the woman said. I'm on foot, I said, eyes bugging. In this heat? The light reflecting off their white shirts was dizzying. In the distance, the muffled echo of a siren rode on the grit in the breeze. Better get on, then, said the woman, talking to the hedge, but waving the pitchfork toward the road. You'll want to be back before dark, and be sure to tell Ms. Von Sand she can expect a follow-up on this. I nodded. The man snapped his shears, and the matter was closed. Complicity. If I had to pinpoint it, I'd say it started when the insurance companies collapsed. Some put it as early as the 2008 financial crisis. But for me, the fall of insurance was the moment when the social safety net got bested by haywire weather you knew wasn't going to improve anytime soon. Was, in fact, going to get a lot worse. Once insurance went, it was infrastructure. The money and time needed to keep things in decent repair was impossible to sustain in conditions that amounted to ongoing assault. Most things still work sometimes. Less and less, though. The cascade of failures happens slowly enough that you don't realize what's going on around you until you can't go back. Then one day, a jeep explodes two blocks from where you live, and you can feel the shockwave inside your apartment. Suddenly, you're worrying about what will happen if a window sh shatters, and you have to live exposed to the ash-filled sky. And already, you're looking back and thinking, we should have seen it. We should have known. But we didn't. We still don't. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. Uh, our next author is Sarah Gilbert. Uh, I met Sarah 10 years ago when uh, I came across uh, a blog she was writing about her Mile End neighborhood in Montreal. And I really liked it, and I asked her if we could kind of uh, reincorporate it a bit and run it in Tattle Creek. And she's been contributing ever since. And I sort of consider Sarah our uh, uh, Tattle Creek's uh, Montreal office. Uh, anytime we do anything in or about Montreal, she is always there to help. Uh, I've taken her on interviews with me to have a local French speaker along, uh, and I'm so happy that she took the train over uh, earlier today, I think, to be here tonight, and she's in the new issue as well. So please welcome Sarah Gilbert. All right, thanks. I'm uh, happy to be here. Uh, so this is the beginning of a story, um, not the one in the current issue, but um, inspired by my daughter who's turning 12 soon, and she's been getting more and more independent over the past couple of years uh, in our neighborhood, in Myland, Montreal. And um, I guess this story is uh, my grappling with her independence. Fred 
locked the door behind her and zipped her cat-shaped keychain into her pocket. Perfect, it said in tiny printing. October morning chilled her wrist. She tugged her sleeve down and out of habit glanced up at the apartment window. Empty, no waving parent. No growing while I'm gone, Frederic. Can we agree on that? Her mom had said the day before, kissing her goodbye. Red-orange maple leaves feathered down as the Order of the Phoenix thunked in her backpack. It was 870 pages, the longest Harry Potter. After her dad had gone to work, she'd reread the part about the Defense Against the Dark Arts group as she ate her cereal, and now she had to run. The gray tabby slipped out from behind the tree, and Fred bent to stroke its dusty back. Harry had Hedwig. She would choose a cat like Hermione. A skateboard thrummed down the sidewalk and the tabby darted. You're going to be late, Theo said, rolling by. Come back, Fred called to the cat and stepped into the street to peer under the parked cars. A voice came from somewhere low to the ground. You looking for Tortuga? Fred saw frayed pant legs and wool socks. The guy in the droopy clothes was sitting on the curb with his usual beer in a bag even though it was eight in the morning. Sometimes he leaned in doorways by the mission across the street from school. He wore socks with no shoes. That's your cat, she asked. She's a special one. The guy had a soft voice and sleepy eyes. I'm Nestor. What's your name? In books, the people, with, the people who notice children and animals turned out to be magic. In real life, they were homeless. Louie, who slept on a cardboard mat outside the grocery store, bowed to Fred when her mom gave him a loony. Jeanne, by the bag machine, gave her winks and high fives. Back in kindergarten, Fred had lined up with her classmates at the window to watch a guy who'd come over from the mission. P arced from his penis into the bushes. After that, the school had put up a fence to protect the strip of green. It kept out the mission people and the kindergartners. Fred looked up the block. A deep quiet rinsed the street, as if every kid had disappeared from there forever. The bell had rung. Do you want to be my friend? Nestor asked. She ran. At recess, Fred went to the bench with her Harry Potter. In the sun, it was warm enough to sit still and read. But Lily got there first with Cass. Excuse me, we're talking privately, Lily informed her, and Cass shrugged as if she had no say in this, as if she and Fred had never been friends in every other grade. Fred moved to a spot at the edge of the playground where she read about fairy, Harry's discovery of the prophecy. In gym, they were doing circus arts, so they juggled scarves that floated in slow motion. At 3.30, the sky was turquoise with cotton ball clouds. Breezy sun took turns with silver-gray gloom. Fred held the book against her chest and slung her backpack over one shoulder. She scuffed through the drifts of sun-toasted leaves on the sidewalk and stopped at the cedar hedge to watch the sparrows puff into fluffy spears. That one's scary. Theo hopped off his board and nodded at her book. I've read it before. What's going on in there? He looked into the bushes. It's a sparrow orchestra, she said. They're like little balls, noisy ones. 
Are you 11 yet? She shook her head. Theo, grade six, was a year ahead of her. He was part orphan because of his mom. In books, the adventures always started when the parents died. But Theo's life didn't appear to be full of adventure. He smelled like a face cloth that needed to go in the laundry. Fred's mom was only away at a conference, and even that made everything at home feel hollow. When's your birthday? Theo asked. Two days after Halloween. Well, let me know what happens, Fredo. He put one foot back on his board and started to roll. You said you'd read it already. To you, I mean, when you turn 11. Theo knew she was waiting for the letter, which she pretended, even to herself, that she wasn't. She hugged the book. There was no actual Hogwarts, and therefore no invitation to go study at the Wizarding Academy would arrive for her by Magic Owl. But still, she ached for magic in her life. It was ridiculous. She knew that. A cold wind pushed clouds in front of the sun, and birds bobbed on their twigs. You like animals, huh? Fredo? That's your name? The guy, Nestor, had appeared out of nowhere. Maybe he'd been there all day watching cats and sparrows. Fred noticed Nestor's socks had a layer of grime on the bottom. I want to show you something. He padded into a yard full of broken chairs, white buckets, and old planters. He went to the front door and opened it. So he had a home, but no shoes. You like cats, right? What if I said babies? Fred took a step closer. Kittens, she thought. An old tabby was nice, but kittens were irresistible. Nestor had his hand on the doorknob. Are you coming? Fred hesitated. The clouds had piled up and turned a heavy gray. Her dad wouldn't be home yet. Come on. Nestor went inside. Almost every apartment in every row house on the street had a long hall with rooms blooming off both sides and a kitchen at the back. But Fred knew you could never really tell what someone else's house was like until you got inside and smelled it. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, our final reader tonight is Richard Kemick, and he gets to go on last because he traveled the furthest, came all the way from B.C. to be here for this. Um, Richard is not in the current issue. Richard was in, I think, three issues ago. We ran a piece about Richard's experience uh, acting in the Badlands Passion Play uh, out west. Uh, that piece has now been turned into a book called I Am Herod. Um, I'll let him tell you what a passion play is if you don't know. He's very entertaining. Please give him a warm welcome. All the way from B.C., Richard Kemick. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Conan. Thank you very much. Uh, it's lovely to be here in the big city. Uh, I, I now live in uh, a small town in BC, which is way nicer than here. But I used to live in, uh, in Calgary, which is substantially less nice uh, than here. Uh, it's just, yeah. uh, south of Calgary, a couple, or sorry, east of Calgary, uh, there's a town called Drumheller, which is a dump. And, uh, but each year, you may know it, uh, there's a very famous dinosaur museum there. Uh, but each year, they also put on uh, 
one of like the world's largest passion plays, which is a play about the uh, life and death and resurrection of, uh, that's kind of a spoiler, but you, you probably knew, uh, of Christ. And uh, the play is huge. You, you're probably thinking it's like a church basement affair. It takes place in this uh, amphitheater that seats 26 to like 3,000 people. Uh, the splendor of the play, like there's chariot races on stage. Uh, there's sword fighting. It's, it's a little gauche, but uh, like it, there's a lot of money that goes into this thing. So I thought, oh, let me, I could write about that. That seems weird enough. Uh, so I, uh, they were hesitant about me writing about it, so I auditioned to join the play, and then uh, I got in as Herod, who is, uh, you, 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 if you're not familiar with the New Testament, which is kind of like a boring read, uh, Herod, Herod is, there are dry spots. Herod is, uh, Herod's kind of like the bad guy. You might know Pontius Pilate. He, Herod and Pontius Pilate are like the bad guys of the play. So anyways, so I, it is so dark here. How have you folks been reading? Uh, anyways, uh, so I, I play Herod, play Herod in, in this play. Okay, so, uh, all, all you should need to know for this part is that, uh, I refer to people in the play by the, the, by the characters they played. So Judas is Judas, Pilate is Pilate, and, and, and so forth like that. Uh, with the exception of a couple people, Vance uh, is the guy who runs the whole thing. And right now in your mind, if you think of a middle-aged leader of a multi-million dollar Christian organization, you're thinking of Vance. You've nailed him. You've nailed him already. Uh, and then Barrett and Jessica are like the, the co-directing team. But I, I think, I think that's, that's, all, yeah, that, that's all you need to know. Oh, yes, and one other person, Latia, is my partner, who I, who I love very much. Uh, I, so when I was going away for the play, I didn't want her to tell anyone about it because I don't like people knowing what I'm writing about. It's just, I don't know, it's just easier. And I also didn't want people to think I was just in this like fundamentalist Christmas play for fun. Uh, oh, because I'm not religious. Sorry, that's important too. I'm not religious. Okay, so Latia is my partner. Oh yeah, okay. In addition to teaching grade one, Latia works as a photographer and has agreed to snap some pictures of the cast for my later reference. As she drives me and the dog, okay, sorry, quick note. Uh, I, I have a dog, I love Latia a lot. The dog and I are very close. The dog's name is Maisie and it was really bumming me out. We rehearse like all summer. We're also all volunteer actors, so we're all terrible at acting. Um, so we're rehearsing all the time, and I, I missed the dog a whole bunch, so I got the dog apart in the play, which in hindsight was wildly unprofessional. Uh, but sorry, the dog's name is Maisie, so that you might, that I obviously I didn't read this section before I chose it tonight, so the Maisie might come up. Okay, so Latia's driving me and the dog to Drumheller. I describe what I want her photographs to capture. Some of these people, I say, have this strange carnival beauty that I don't know how to put into words. 
Strange carnival beauty, she echoes. Yeah, I say, people you'd be chased by through a house of mirrors. The, the people of southern Alberta are beautiful on the inside. Uh, yeah, I say, people you'd be chased by through a house of mirrors. Latia takes her eyes off the road for a good five or six seconds to look at me. Are you, like, getting into character? Before Latia is allowed to take pictures, Vance, that's the guy that runs this, this place, has insisted on meeting with us. His office, his office was in the basement of, uh, like, this amphitheater, and it's... Uh, he, he was very reclusive, except when he like beckoned you into his, audience, uh, into his office. Uh, his office has somehow become even messier, to the point of conceptual art. It was a shithole. Uh, a bottle of hot sauce oozes across a VHS tape. A framed picture of a dagger rests inside a file folder. A pad of paper with only the word, yes, scrawled across it. In the corner, an air conditioner. Okay, it was... If you've ever, Drumheller is the desert, like it's the Badlands, so like hoodoos and shit. If you've ever, the play we perform it in the middle of August, when the heat is hellish at best, like it is unbelievably hot there. It's also odd because as you would imagine, the average patron of the play is approximately like 200 years old. Uh, and the heat would just fucking roast these people alive. <laughs> The play was also three and a half hours long. Yeah, every minute, thrilling. Uh, okay, but Vance's office was the only place with an air conditioner, which really tells you something about Vance. Uh, so Vance's office, there's other shit, I don't need to read that. Okay, uh, Lydia, Vance says, welcome. Much like the word quinoa, Latia's name does not translate well from the written word, from the written to the spoken word. And so she has grown patient yet precise in the correction of its pronunciation. Latia, she tells Vance, pausing for him to take note. And it's nice to be here. We are no strangers to media, Vance says. Have you seen the Phil Spink docu documentary? Latia says, what's that? Over the course of the summer, I have heard a lot about Phil Spink and his documentary. I wasn't able to find the documentary online or in the library, so Judas begrudgingly lent me his personal copy after making me promise to return it promptly and in its original condition. The documentary is a feature-length film about the celebrated Gospel of John script. Okay, sorry, quick note. The, the, so the, the, the play is based on the New Testament, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, and the play is in like a five-year rotation of each play. So we were in the Gospel of Luke, which is by far the worst Gospel. It is just, it is, it is in serious need of an editor. Uh, but the Gospel of John, much more celebrated. Uh, okay, uh, documentaries about the Gospel of John script of seven years past, but most of its runtime is spent asking questions if Jesus drove a truck, what truck would that be? And then there's a footnote. Uh, the answer, for the record, is a, multi, a triple axle articulated dump truck with a rated payload of 45 metric tons, according to Cassius, who was, coincidentally, Drumheller's local dump truck salesman. The Jesus in the documentary had a mad scientist take on the role. 
there's so over the course of this this place history, there have maybe been about ten Jesuses, and they all have like a very distinctive flavor, in a sense. Um, so the, the, there, there's like biker Jesus, uh, fat Jesus, uh, who is very jo- that was like a Santa Claus type type take. Uh, okay, so this J- Jesus was mad scientist Jesus. But the understudy of that year was cast as the lead in subsequent seasons and went on to become the best Jesus ever. That one's self-explanatory. There's one Jesus who everyone agrees is like the best Jesus. It's not our Jesus. Our Jesus was shitty. Uh, okay. Phil Spin... Oh, yeah. There is... A- okay, okay. I was going to skip a part, but the... Imp- well, fuck. The uh, important part is that uh, there's this part in the documentary where Vance casually admits to the camera that, quote, everyone in the organization is carrying some of the load on credit cards, buying the things we need. And as those tickets sell, we're reimbursing and eking through. It's bonkers. So he does just, like, casually admit to fraud in the documentary, and, like, nobody gives a shit. (laughs) Phil Spink really got this place, Vance tells Latia, and we know that your husband will as well. We're not married, but of course, I'm not going to, like, correct him. Uh, I'm sure he will, she says. Because before Phil Spink, media came here and only made fun of us. The CBPP, that's the the name of the, the organization, has been subject to a handful of articles, and aside from those written by the Drumheller Mail, these articles are always cursory in their analysis, often with a hint of derision, most times commenting on nothing more than the novelty of the play's plot or the amazement that a real live donkey is trotted on stage. A documentary prior to Spinks had a pair of singing hillbillies for narrators, one with a symbol on his head. An American academic paper derides the company for not casting Simon of Cyrene, who the scriptures say is Ethiopian, as a person of color, and then suggests the directors remedy this by putting the white actor in blackface. It's actually quite shocking that they didn't do that. The CBPP's going to be on the wrong side of a lot of history, but I feel like this is a check in their favor, that they've never succumbed to that. Maybe Justin Trudeau can get a role. Who knows? A newspaper, a newspaper column from two seasons ago hit a particularly sour note within the cast when it was written in a style usually reserved for refugee crises. Quote, in the hot desert sun, actors in thick woolen costumes routinely collapse from heat stroke. Characters are lashed to poles, thrown downstairs, dunked underwater, and forced to jog for kilometers. That's not, that's not true. Most people couldn't jog. And if you saw the play, you would know that. Uh, So, Leticia, Vance says, we're okay with you taking photos, but I want to make sure we're on the same page. He means a literal page and has the office manager print off a contract stating that the company reserves the right to veto any photos they wish. We are very uncomfortable with this, I say. As a professional photographer and a professional, you know, book writer, I don't think we can agree to that. I know all about writing a book, Vance says, and from one of the many boxes behind him, behind him pulls out a paperback. Then, from a larger box, he pulls out another. Vance, it turns out, is the author of two self-published novels, The Scroll, Bringing Ancient Wisdom to Life, and The Hammer, The True Danger, Lies Within. Both of these are available on Amazon. And actually, The Hammer, I found out later, there are several, uh, it's like a trilogy. I cannot speak to their quality. And I will end there.
Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. If you'd like to read the other 299 and 300 pages of Richard's book, it's, it's available. Richard is also associated with Nathaniel G. Moore, I should point out, which makes me wonder if Nathaniel is trying to pull a fast one by. Uh, thanks to Richard. Uh, thanks to Sarah. Thanks to Joel. Thanks to Tori. Uh, thanks again to Famous Last Words. Please tip the bartenders well. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'm going to stand around here if anybody wants a magazine for a few minutes. Uh, just buy one for me. There's no table tonight. Thanks again.